Once he walked beside me Like he'd been there all along Not a stranger, but a father Who can sense when something's wrong And he answered all my questions And he understood my fears Somehow vanished now that he was here. And you see who walks with you. Can't you hear who speaks your name? Can't you feel something stirring in your heart? How his words Ring strong and true like a once familiar strain and the past we follow from now on be the same. I couldn't bear for him to leave me, and I begged him, please, to stay, spend the evening a few moments before he went his way. Then, like a post, he stood and blessed me, broke the bread and poured the wine. Then I knew there was something there. I recognize, yes, I can see who walks with me. I can hear who speaks my name. I can feel something stirring in my heart. How his words. Drink strong and true like a once familiar strain, and I know I could never be the same. I can see, and from that moment in time. I felt the emptiness upside, and all the wonder of creation shining through. And for the first time in my life, I really looked into his eyes and saw eternity, and suddenly I knew. Yes, I can see, I can see who walks with me, I can hear who speaks.
my name. I can feel something stirring in my heart. How his word still rings strong and true, like a once familiar strain. And I know I can never be the same. I can see I can see I can see I can Thank you, Mark, Steve, Clark, for this wonderful, worshipful music. Steve White's doing a good job for us, isn't he? Turn with me now in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. A month ago, we studied Pilgrim's Progress, that great Christian classic. The burden of the scripture this morning is that pilgrims must make progress. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Let us press on to maturity. Let us go on. Let us go forward in the Christian life. The New Testament is full of references on growth. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, but in your thinking be mature. We're no longer to be children, we're to grow up. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow. Because these Hebrew Christians had failed to grow, in the midst of persecution, they were tempted to go back to the Jewish law and religion. Babysitting grandparents had difficulty with their little granddaughter continually falling out of bed one night. Finally, the impatient grandmother said, Honey, what's wrong that you keep falling out of bed? And the little girl said, I guess I'm just too close to where I got in at. Many Christians keep falling out and falling away because they're too close to where they got in at. And so the writer this morning is pointing his finger in our faces saying, it's time to leave the ABC blocks of nursery theology 
and press on to maturity. Here's the outline. We begin by looking at the need for growth, and then we move on into chapter 6 and look at the call to growth. And then we're going to see the results of growth and the means of growth and the very basis of growth, the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, if you will, look at verse 11. The rest of chapter 5, the writer is showing the spiritual immaturity of the readers by measuring them against their response to the Word of God. And your maturity as a Christian is likewise seen in your response to the Word of God. Ushers, you need to turn the lights out in the choir loft, please. In verse 11, he talks about their attitude toward the word. Concerning him, we have much to say, but it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. These believers started their backward journey by drifting from the word by doubting the word, and now we find that they have become dull of hearing. That word means slow, sluggish, senseless, forgetful. They're like an old Negro maid that we had back in Virginia who had arthritis. And she says, I moves, but I moves like coal molasses. And so these and people today have become dull of hearing. Unlike those in Thessalonica of whom we read in letter 1, chapter 2, verse 13, and for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. One of the first indications of a spiritual decline, of a backward walk, is a dullness toward the Word. Folks don't want to go to Sunday school because of dull teaching. Folks complain of a dull preacher. They're more interested in other things than the Bible. It is boredom. This is a clear indication that people are drifting, doubting, and have become dull in the hearing of the Word of God. 
The second thing is the activity that one has in response to the word. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Would you not agree that an indication of maturity is one's concern and ability to share, to communicate spiritual truth. Now, this does not mean that everyone can be a Sunday school teacher. But certainly, if a person is growing in Christ, he has something to share. There is truth to give to other people. But here we're told that these, instead of sharing, we're in need of being taught again and again these basic elementary teachings of Christ, of the oracles of God. In the third place, the absorption, and that word may be spelled wrong. Look now, if you will, at the end of verse 12, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Milk is a pre-digested food, right? And babies need that kind of nourishment or food. And he says here that this Milk is the principles, the elementary principles, these basic teachings of the Christian life. We begin the Christian life on the finished work of Christ. We continue the Christian life by the unfinished work of the Holy Spirit as he opens the scripture to our lives. And then the application of the word. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses, their spiritual senses, trained to discern good and evil. The purpose of knowing the Bible is that we will make application to our lives, that it will affect our daily walk. And as we learn to apply the truth of God, what happens? We exercise the spiritual senses in which we're able to discern, to decide between what is good and what is evil. As you know, a baby will put anything in their mouth. One time, John Mitchell had worms in his mouth. And you see, baby Christians will put anything in their mouths. They'll listen to any radio or television preacher and unable to determine whether he is true to the scriptures or not. An immature Christian, I say, 
will go anywhere and do anything on the Lord's day because they haven't applied the truth of the scriptures to their lives. An immature Christian will look at anything on television because they have not applied the truth of the Bible to their lives. Immature Christians will not tithe, they give erratically because they have not applied the truth of the scriptures to their lives. Now, many of us have been Christians for many, many years. But the issue is, are we growing? Are we still immature? As we're growing older, are we growing up in Christ? Browning said, man was made to grow and not to stop. How desperately we need, as we grow older, to grow lovely. Let me grow lovely, growing old. The many fine things, laces and ivory and gold and silks need not be new. And there is healing in old trees. Old streets and glamour old. Why may not I, as well as these, grow lovely, growing old? Are you getting sweeter and more lovely, easier to live with as you grow older? As we come now to chapter 6, we come to a very weighty problem passage. Through the years, people have debated the interpretation of verses 4 through 6. The chapter opens with a call to growth. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about Christ, let us press on to maturity. Literally, the phrase press on should be translated, let us be carried forward. You see, Christian growth is basically the work of God in our lives as we submit, as we cooperate. God has begun a good work in us, and it's God by his spirit and his word that moves us forward. And so when he says, let us press on to maturity, literally he is saying, listen, let us cooperate with God as he would enable us to make progress and to go forward. The normal Christian life is one of growth, of development, of expansion. But the writer here warns the readers that if you just live with those basic elementary teachings of Christ, then you will not be able to press on to maturity. He mentions six basic truths in Christian doctrine. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. One comes to the point that he recognizes something is wrong and he 
not only feels sorry for that wrong, but he turns from it. That's repentance. And then in trust, he turns to Jesus Christ. That is faith. Of instruction about washings, I believe it says baptism in the authorized version, and laying on of hands, these two basic teachings concern one's relationship with the local body, the church. Through baptism, one declares his faith and becomes a part of the body of Christ. The laying on the hands more than likely spoke of some blessing that a member of the church received when hands were laid upon them in prayer, or perhaps the ordination or the commissioning of some individual for a special service. Then he mentions two future events, the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the believer and of the lost, and eternal judgment. Now, all of these are important Christian truths, but they are referred to as the elementary, basic teachings of Christ. And if we are to grow, to press on to maturity, we've got to go beyond just salvation by faith, baptism, the resurrection, and a coming judgment. But you know, that's as far as some people ever get in their understanding of the scriptures. We've got to go on beyond that. Now, because of the seriousness of this thing of drifting, of failing to grow, the writer brings us now to a passage that is very difficult to interpret. Winston Churchill once said of the Russians' war actions that they are a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Well, you could uh, say that about this passage of Scripture. These verses are one of the most difficult and most controversial passages in the Bible. Let me share with you three of many interpretations given to verses four through six. First of all, there are those who believe that this teaches the sin of apostasy. Look at them. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Since they again crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now focus on the words have fallen away. In the original language, 
The word is not apostia. The word for apostasy that means to fall completely away. But rather we find the word here is parasantus. believe that you can return and be saved, right? Our friends in the assembly of God, the Pentecostals, Methodists, and some others, basically believe that you can lose your salvation, but it's possible to bring yourself back. But what does this passage say? Then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified in themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. That passage says that if you lose your salvation, you cannot come back and repent and accept Christ again because you would be saying, Lord Jesus, you couldn't keep me saved the first time. You were not adequate to make me secure when I first came, so I need to come and see if you can do it again. That is not what this passage teaches. Others interpret the passage to refer to those Hebrews who came under the influence of the teaching and preaching the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but never came to the point that they were born again, that they actually were saved. And so they're saying that the writer is referring to people who just came to a point without really being saved. Look at the passage, verse 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened. The word means enlightened once and for all. It's the same word that is translated in chapter 10, verse 32, to indicate a true experience of salvation. And then look, if you will, at what else he says, have been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. There are those who claim that this simply refers to those who just sampled the truth and experience that Christ would give. But you cannot based on interpretation of a passage of scripture upon an English translation. You see, Jesus Christ, as we're told in chapter 2, verse 9, tasted death for every man. Did Jesus just sample death? Or did he drink that cup until it was emptied? You know, of course, Jesus did not just taste or sample death, but rather Jesus drank the cup until it was empty. And so this passage is not referring to people who have sort of sampled the truth 
and had come under a measure of conviction, but didn't really accept Jesus Christ as Savior. It says, rather, they were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and of the heavenly calling. How can you just sample the heavenly calling? And so I do not believe that the text here teaches any way that the writer is referring to those who just came under the influence of the gospel. I believe that he is writing about a hypothetical case to prove the point that one cannot lose his salvation. As I've said before, you must interpret scripture from the context. What is the main theme of the book of Hebrews? The heavenly continuing ministry of Christ, our great high priest, who is in heaven praying for us, who makes us secure. And look at the very context of the verses here in chapter 6. In a moment, you're going to see that after this word of warning about spiritual immaturity, the need of growth, the writer launches in to prove that through the work of Christ, we are indeed saved. And so I believe that he is simply saying, now, if it were, he doesn't say it is, but he says, now, if it were possible for one, for one who has indeed been enlightened and have tasted of the Holy Spirit and have been made partakers of that heavenly calling, if it were possible for him to fall away, he couldn't be saved again. But he doesn't say that indeed. One loses his salvation. And so this word, fallen away, to me is the key. In which the writer uses that Greek word that designates one who deviates or falls down for a time. Not that one falls out of God's grace and loses his salvation. So the burden of the passage is we ought to be afraid in the sense of reverence and in submission to God. We ought as Christians to grow in the Lord because of the danger, the peril that we face in living such an immature Christian life. Now in verses 7 through 10, he deals with the results of growth. And I think as you look at these and other verses, you're going to understand what I've been saying, that he is teaching not apostasy, but he's teaching the security of the believer. He uses here the illustration of a field. You know, you measure the worth of a piece of land by what it will produce. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also till, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. 
But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. You are not like that field that is worthless. For you have given evidence. You have shown results of Christ in your life. Look at it in verse 9. We are convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation. Now, could he, he have been writing to people who had lost their salvation and said that? Things that accompany salvation. Even though they were weak, immature, and threatening to turn back to the law, Yet he is saying there is evidence in your life of a work of God. We are confident as we see various results of Christ in your life. Boy, what a sermon that is. Let me ask you, as you look at your life, or better still, as your companion, your children look at your life, do they see things? that accompany salvation? Is there evidence in your life that something has happened, that you're changed, that you are growing in Jesus Christ? My friend, if there is life, it will show itself in one way or another, in spite of all the weakness and failure that may sometimes characterize our lives. Move on now to verses 11 and 12. And consider here the means of growth. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. That you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who faith and patience now, while it is God at work in us, while it is God who carries us along in the Christian life, the writer says, you've got to do your part. You've got to be diligent. You've got to imitate these who had faith, who were steadfast, these who did not give up, you have got to follow after these people. There must be diligence in your life as a Christian. You see, choir, God works in your life, but you've got to cooperate. There are definite disciplines. There are actions. There are involvements. And the reason we plead for you to get involved in Bible study, to give yourself to ministry in this church, is that you are giving God a chance to carry you along to grow you as a Christian. Look around you at giants in this church. And the reason that they are mature in Christ Solid as a rock is because they have had faith and steadfastness. And so the means of growth is you've got to be diligent. You've got to work at it. 
You've got to get involved. You can't just sit on the sideline and watch others and listen to teaching and the preaching. The word of God speaks to you. There are things that you must do. Be you not only hearers of the word, but, but also doers. Now, let's wrap it up and look at the basis for growth. The basis of growth is found in the truth that indeed we are saved and we are secure in Christ. The basis of growth is that there's life. And because there is life, we can grow in the Lord Jesus. You see, unless someone would interpret this passage this warning, this exhortation for growth to indicate that one could lose their salvation, we find now in verses 13 through 20 that the writer gives a tremendous argument for the assurance of eternal life. The spiritual progress that we ought to make is not on the basis that we're afraid God is going to condemn us, but in a holy submission to God, we trust him to do it for us. He gives us three arguments for our security. First of all, God's promise. Verse 12 ends that they inherited the promises. And then he uses the example of Abraham. God gave Abraham a promise that I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. But it took how many years for God to fulfill that promise to Abraham? 25 years, wasn't it? For a long time, Abraham just lived on the promise. He didn't experience the fulfillment. He was living in hope. And the writer is saying here, listen, God has given us the promise that we have life in Christ, that we have eternal life, that we will never be lost. And so, like Abraham, we must rest on the promise. Secondly, he talks about God's oath. Not only did God promise, but God swore that it would be true. Look at verse 17. In the same way God, desiring even more to show the heirs of promise, that's you and me, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed what? An oath. And that oath shows two unchangeable things. God, it's impossible for God to lie. And because God is truthful, we have strong encouragement who have fled for refuge in holding, in laying hold of the hope that's set before us. You remember in Numbers, the cities of refuge, because then they had very little government and justice, the law provided cities of refuge where those who had committed crime or murder could go so that uh, emotions could cool off and justice could be done. And so here he uses this as an illustration that Christ is the city of refuge. He's the city of refuge, and we can go to Christ 
And we have that oath, that encouragement. God does not lie. He makes us secure in Christ, our city of refuge. Then the third argument for our security in the last two verses. This hope, we have an anchor of the soul. An anchor, a boat anchor, was a frequent common symbol among early Christians of the hope we have in Christ. I read somewhere that they found 66 pictures of anchors in the catacombs in Rome. You know what an anchor is. An anchor is that which you put down in the midst of wind and waves and storm to make one secure. When we lived in Virginia, and we had this morning Kay Johnson that I baptized in Virginia many, many years ago, we had a little ski boat, and we would enjoy taking our children and going with other families to Chesapeake Bay for an outing. One particular day, the water was pretty rough because of the winds, and so we brought the boat in, and I anchored it on shore. I didn't have enough money to buy an anchor, and so I used a five-gallon bucket and put some sand in it and tied the rope to that bucket. And usually it worked. But we were there playing around on the beach, and I looked up, and that boat had broken loose, and the wind was driving it out into the bay. I jumped in the water and swam frantically, but couldn't catch it because the wind was so fierce. I went back to the shore and stood there, and before long, that boat was just a little speck, way out there in the horizon. But somebody called the Coast Guard, and they picked up the boat and brought it to us. And there was the rope tied to an old rusty handle that had come off of the bucket. Now listen, as you face life, as the storms beat upon you, as temptation comes, as you face all kind of trouble and difficulty, do you have the anchor? of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast? Or is your anchor the riches of this world that moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through the steel? Are you anchored in Christ that sure and steadfast hope or is your life tied on to some other things that are wearing out with the erosion of time? A boat anchor anchors one down, doesn't it? But look at this anchor. The one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. 
talking about Jesus, ascension, being in heaven is our great high priest who's praying for us. And so you see, our anchor is not one that pulls us down, but one that pulls us up. It's the anchor of Christ in heaven that holds us, that makes us secure, that gives us this sure and steadfast hope of the soul. Did you look at the front page of the paper this morning? A picture of Ron McNair holding his two-year-old son, Reggie, after his successful space shuttle flight in 1984. Ron McNair didn't return this time to hold little Reggie. The little Reggie's mother, who works at the Space Center in Houston, is a Christian. And she has said to Reggie and the other children, Daddy is in a spaceship with God. And the byline was, Reggie believes that his daddy is in a spaceship with God. Well, one of these days, there are going to be some reverses in life, financial, health-wise. One of these days, you're going to lose your companion. One of these days, you're going to face some traumatic experiences that will buffet and try you. Oh, what a difference it makes. When that day comes, to be able to say, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace, and every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. I invite you today, tie your life by faith to that anchor, Jesus Christ. For some of you who today, if tragedy would come into your life, would not have an anchor, come on today, trust Jesus. Give yourself to him. Start out with the elementary teachings, but then go on. How many of you today know Christ? But your anchor is not secure. You're tying your life to other things. The priorities of life are not what they ought to be. Some of you today would be shaken if suddenly you were to lose your job, as Neil testified, or lose some loved one in death. But when you've got an anchor, you're able to stand as Neil did and praise God who's adequate. There are some of you today who live in this area 
We want to invite you to come and be a part of this church. That is an aspect that accompanies salvation. If you're not tied into a Bible teaching church, unless you're involved, unless you have given yourself to disciplines of the Christian life expressed in a loving body such as this church, you'll never grow as a Christian should. I want to ask you today, if you're not tied on to Christ through the church, to come on and cast an anchor with us. Some of you singles that need to do that. There's some of you couples that need to do that. There's some of you who have come for the first time and God has spoken to your heart this morning. I want to invite you to do that. I want us to sing that wonderful old hymn, The Haven of Rest. It's 101 in your hymn book. As we sing, as we pray, as God is speaking to you, won't you come and make your decision? Step out and do so. Let's stand and sing. I saw inside out a life sea, so burdened with sin and distress. Till I heard a sweet voice saying, make me your choice, and I entered the decision you should make for Christ the church. You see, the devil, his name means a murderer. The work of the devil is to destroy God's creation. And the way that he attempts to destroy us is to deceive us, is to put within our minds and lives things that are not so. And he's telling some of you now to wait. Don't do it today. Put it all. But I want to ask you to give yourself to the one who gives life, Christ. And in your heart, right now, do what the Holy Spirit would have you to do, won't you? As we sing the last stanza, come ahead. The song of my soul, since the Lord made me whole, has been the old story so Of Jesus who saved, who so well will have a home in the heaven of rest. I beckon my soul in the heaven of rest. I'll say. Oh, I 
Father, I just want to thank you for who you are. Father God, I pray right now, Lord God, for my brothers and sisters. If there's anyone that accepted you today, Lord God, I pray, Father God, that, Father, you will help them, lead them to a church that preaches the gospel, Lord God, that they may grow in you, Father God. And Father, right now, I thank you for Pastor JC and his word and his study in Hebrews, Father God. I pray, Father God, that every single one of us will put it into practice in the powerful name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, brothers and sisters, if any one of you received Jesus today as your Lord and Savior, please send us a message and we will send you pamphlets and the Bible. God bless you and thank you. Please share this with your friends.